All right, if you have your Bibles, this morning we will be, well, we'll start in Ephesians 2. What I'm going to do over the next few weeks, if the Lord tarries and uh, everything unfolds the way we think it's going to unfold, which is a big if, is... And I don't know how many part series on um, the church. So I'm calling it the dwelling place of God. And today we're just going to answer this, this question, which is, what is a church? Right? Um, and the reason, <laughs> without go- going on a long personal history, and then giving you all an opportunity to do, to do the same. What, what I think would be helpful for all of us, um, and I mean Springfield and the Kelly Drive Group, which hopefully will just be Springfield in a while. Um, it, it would just be helpful to kind of get a biblical reset on what it is exactly that, that God is calling us to and why we do this on Sunday mornings. So... Um, I, in talking with Lee and Cecil, um, I think it was uh, Lee recommended we, we teach on things related to this subject. So I don't, I'm not sure how many weeks it'll be, but I, for sure three, possibly four, maybe five. We'll see. Um, but today's just the church. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 and, and Liz, just note that it's already 1024 and I'm just starting, so we're going to do our best. All right. Two, Ephesians 2, 17 says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the worship that we've already had this morning. We thank you for inhabiting the praise of your people. And now we pray again that you would help us. Help us pay attention. Help me as I speak. Help us all as we think. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm not going to set the thermostat based on my personal preference, but I find it to be a little warm in here right now. Any, can I just get a show of hands? Most of you. So I don't know if we can switch it from heat to cool, but that'd be great. Um, Because it's just going to get warmer the longer I talk. (laughs) Ephesians 2.17 says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So we'll start by answering the question, who is he? that Paul is talking about, that did this preaching. And to do that, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. One is easy to find, one is a little bit more difficult to find. The first one we're going to look at is Colossians chapter 1. So that's just a couple of pages to the right from where you're at. And then the second one will be Hebrews chapter 1. 
All right, Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. Sounds like you're all there. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what does this tell us? And I'm going to go fast. Hopefully you were able to pay attention the whole time I was reading that out loud. If you're like me, you go think about other things when someone is reading out loud. Um, That's why we're going to review this. It says that he, that's Jesus, is the God of Genesis 1. That's what Colossians 1 is telling us. He preexisted everything. Okay. Second, he's the head of the church, which means if by some crazy chance I become the teaching pastor at Springfield Baptist, I will not be the head of the church. Uh, Garrett will not be the worship leader. If Jesus is head of the church, then that means Jesus is the chief shepherd and he in the Holy Spirit is our worship leader. Right. So just so we get the hierarchical structure correct, he's the head of the church. And then my favorite part of Colossians 1 is when it says uh, in him, 19, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, I think it was four or five years ago, sadly, that I realized that this is an utterly true statement, okay? If you want to know what God is like, what is the heart of God like, if you want to know, you look at Jesus Christ. That's the heart of God. I used to think, and long after I should have known better, I used to think that there were kind of, and I wouldn't have ever said this out loud or taught this, but it's what I thought. There were kind of two versions of God. There's the Old Testament version where God is kind of angry all the time, stomping around, setting things on fire. And then there's the New Testament version of God where he sends Jesus and Jesus is loving and kind. Um, That's ridiculous. There is one version of God and he is perfectly revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have any doubt about the heart of God towards you, the place that you need to look is not the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, The place you need to look is the cross where Jesus hangs dying. That's the heart of God towards sinners. For those who repent, you can look at the throne of grace and see a risen Jesus ruling over his creation with everything under control, and he is for you. He delights in you. That's the heart of God. Look at Jesus Christ. If you don't repent, well, then then we, we need to look at that other side of God, where he is the judge of those that live and move and breathe. The time is coming where that heart of God, which is seen on the cross and at the throne of grace, is going to be seated on a a throne of judgment. And this is the question you're going to get judged on, not what did you do when you were 13 at two o'clock in the morning? The question you're going to get judged on is what did you do with Jesus Christ? In him, 
the fullness of God dwells. So what you know about God can be filtered through what you see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right? Fourth, so he's the God of Genesis 1. He preexisted everything. He's the head of the church. He's the fullness of God. Fourth, he's the reconciler of all things. I'm not making that up. That's what verse 20 of Colossians 1 says. Through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, he causes those who would be at war with him to be at peace with him. That's what God is saying about Jesus. He reconciles. That's what a reconciler does. He brings peace between people who are not in harmony. He brings harmony to relationships where there is not harmony. That's what Jesus does. Okay? So that's what we know about him so far. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Question 1 here from Ephesians 2 was, who is he in this verse? Because 2.17 says he came and preached peace, right? So he, that's Jesus. What did he do? Well, he came and preached peace. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, and he appointed, I'm sorry, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what does this tell us? This tells us, first of all, for those of you who tuned out, tells us that God used to speak through the prophets. It's Old Testament, all the way up through John the Baptist, who was the last prophet. God used to speak through the prophets. Now he has spoken through his son, Jesus. So, Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace. Who did? Jesus did. Okay, Consistent with all that had come before, he came and preached peace, and Hebrews 1 echoes Colossians 1. Did you notice that? Like 1, 1 through 4 sounds a lot like Colossians 1, 15 through 20. There's very consistent remarks here. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He holds all things together. He reconciles sinners to God. He's superior to all other beings. So Colossians and Hebrews are telling us that the creator and sustainer of the universe came and preached peace to those who were in rebellion and at war with him. Okay, we all good with that? We're done. We'll keep going. Who did he preach it to? Back in Hebrews, or sorry, Ephesians 2, I slept last night. (laughs) We've answered who he is, Jesus. We've answered what he's done. He came and preached peace and reconciled. Okay, third, to whom did he do it? Two groups, to those who were far and to those who were near. This is really simple. You go to Acts 18, or 16 rather, and I'll just keep talking. You go to Acts 16, I'll keep talking. Some of you, if we had a testimony Sunday, would come up here and say things like, I used to be a barbarian, 
And then Jesus came into my life and changed me and made me into a different person, right? There's a few of you here who would have that testimony. Some of us in here would say, I didn't look so much like a barbarian. I kind of, from a fairly early age, understood the basic tenets of the gospel. And I was always fond of Jesus. I don't remember really being in enmity with him. Okay? And that's okay. Like, it's okay to have that testimony. I'm not trying to trick you. So if you're like, well, that's how I feel, but I don't want to say it out loud. It's okay. It's all right. In Acts 16, we see a perfect juxtaposition of these two ideas. Verse 14 I hope this is right. I better check. Oh, it's not right, is it? That was, that's crazy. The Holy Spirit must have just warned me that that wasn't going to be right. I want to find it because I want you all to believe me. Ah, it's verse 11. 1611. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained at this city some days. So this is Paul and uh, the crew are in Gentile country. Okay, this is very much Gentile country. And they stay in this place for some days. Verse 14, or sorry, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So there's no church, there's no synagogue. They just figure maybe there'll be some people praying by the river, which is understandable if you've ever been to a river. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) We sat down and spoke to the women, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. We're in Gentile country. There are no synagogues. There are no meeting places. We're down by the river. And there's somebody here named Lydia. What's up, Lydia? (laughs) Who is described by Luke in Acts as a worshiper of God. This is somebody who's near. She's not in the brothel. She's not, um, you know, doing drugs. She's just worshiping God the best way she knows how. She was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay. So what happened? She got saved. She was already near, but there needed to be something in her heart that wasn't there. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says in Ephesians 2, he came and preached peace to those who were near, this is the picture you should have in your head. There are those who don't have to be in a ditch with a needle sticking out of their arm in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean they need the blood of Jesus less. Look at the very next person. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Now, we'll stop there because we just don't have that much time, but if you compare Lydia, the seller of purple, to this demon-possessed girl, I think you see a picture of one who was near and one who was far. What Paul's really talking about in Ephesians 2 contextually is Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were near. They had all of the oracles of God from the Old Testament. The Gentiles were far. They had a pantheon of gods that they worshipped and sacrificed their kids to, right? So it's a little bit clear. In our culture, since everybody's kind of polite, and the, well, it used to be everybody's kind of polite, and the law will crack down on you if you violate it, it's harder to tell the difference between those who are near and those who are far. Because in America in 2021, alcoholics have gotten really good at being functional about it. At least in Omaha. So what were you, near or far? Or what are you, near or far? What kind of relationship do you have with God in Christ right now today? Just look at the last week. All right? And I'm not, one of the, I'm not trying to like, I'm not gonna guilt you. I just want you to be honest with you. You don't even have to talk to me. All right? But look at your last week and what exactly did you do in relationship with God in the person and work of Jesus Christ? What did you do? You have relationships with people. What do you do? We, we met up on Thursday uh, with John and Katie at... The Twisted Vines, that was called? Yeah, and just got hammered. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we played music bingo because we're in relationship. There were a few of us there in relationship. So that's something you do when you're in relationship. My question is, what did you do in relationship with God through Jesus Christ this week? And if the answer is nothing, then I would say maybe you're near, But he's preaching peace to you this morning and something needs to change because if you're in relationship with somebody, you'll remember interacting with them, right? Okay, maybe you're far. Maybe you don't buy any of this. For the rest of us who have been saved, who've been walking with Jesus for a while, look what verse 18 says. And the question that we're answering, young man, is what is a church, okay? Verse 18, Ephesians 2 says, through him, did I not say Ephesians 2? Sorry. Ephesians 2, verse 18 says, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So whether you were from far off or you were from near, you're saved by the same blood, the same Christ, the same word of God, the same Father, the same spirit, the same Savior. Wherever you came from, whether it was a couple of steps or it was a lot of steps to get to Jesus Christ, you were saved the same way. So guess what that makes all of us? The same. Let's say it together. It makes us all the same. Okay? Wherever you came from, if you're in Christ right now, we are all the same. Dependent on him for whatever we need to live and move and have our being. 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, what does that say? Fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Think about this. 
We're saved from all kinds of backgrounds, all walks of life, all manner of different stories that we could get up here and tell. In fact, from one conversion to another, like the, it's like a football game, right? It's like Nebraska versus Northwestern and Nebraska versus Minnesota. Those look like two different teams, but they were all playing by the same rules. The goals didn't change. So we all got to the same place through much different paths, right? Different testimonies, all kinds of backgrounds. And now we are members, according to verse 19, Of the, look at it, 19. We are members of the household. What's a church? The cool thing is I designed what I think is a very elegant and attractive and seeker-friendly looking uh, picture for this sermon series. And it's out on Instagram and we'll get it linked up on the website. And once we get live streaming going, everybody's going to see it. It's a beautiful church set in a hillside overlooking like what's probably a bay of water, right? And I put the dwelling place of God over the picture of a church building. Ironically, I don't think that's the dwelling place of God. Because what we are, are all members of a household. That's a family, right? So whether Springfield and the Kelly Drive group constitute and we all vote and agree on stuff, like it, it really doesn't matter because what we're doing here is just belonging to a household, a family, saved from all walks of life, all kinds of different stories. Some were far away, some were a little bit closer to Jesus when we came to faith in him, but now we're all the same and we're all members of the household. Think about this. Families are complicated, right? So let's walk through, <coughs> excuse me, who all we have here. We've got babies in Christ. I'm not talking about Riley's youngest. I'm talking about just people who are fresh off the bus to the boot camp of faith. Okay, Babies, can I get a witness from Matt and Riley? And I guess, you know, not that long ago, John and Darcy. Babies are useless. <laughs> right? They don't contribute anything to the family. They don't bring in any income. They don't help out. What they do is they make you stop and feed them. And then they can't even digest their food on their own. Yep. So you got to help them with that. And then they soil their clothes like savages. <laughs> but I've never met a dad who was like, I don't know, man, if this kid doesn't start to contribute, <laughs> we're not going to love him anymore. People, we don't think like that. But I am amazed how often in the church, that's exactly how we treat the babies. You're not contributing. Come on, get with the program. Start eating meat. Why are you still on milk? Well, they're babes in Christ. They're fresh. They're new. They're pink skin with a little peach fuzz on it. They, they're not like us, right? All grizzled and sour. Then you've got like young kids. Young kids just break everything because they're careless and they lack common sense. If I could have the money back from all the things that my kids damaged or it's just gone, I wouldn't have to work for probably a few months. 
And they don't contribute much. I mean, they're a little bit better than babies. They kind of eat on their own and they're learning how to brush their teeth and bathe, but they're not great. Teenagers wreck the car. And the older they get, the more expensive the things that they can break are. So thinking about the family, you got babies that are useless. You got kids that are breaking everything. You got teenagers in the faith who are really breaking things. And then you've got young adults who are jaded. Because they know everything and they don't want to hang around with the babies and the little kids anymore because they're better than that. Then you've got the middle agers who are out of touch, like nobody wears tap out anymore. Brad, nobody does that. The jeans with the sparkly like back pocket embroidery, bro. (laughs) Goodwill, it's time to get some new clothes, right? So nobody wants to be around the middle-agers, and then you got the old people. Now, the old people are the ones that have it figured out. They have the wisdom. They have the experience. They have the patience to deal with all those other groups. But you know what the problem with the old people is? They are burned out. They don't have anything left to give. Like they've just been wrung out by life in the church. So here's our family. We got babies, we got toddlers, we got little kids, we got teenagers, we got young adults who just finished their first psychology class and are better than everybody else. You got middle-aged people that are out of touch who think stuff from the early 2000s is still cool, like they're still on Facebook. And you got, and you got old people. And that makes up our family. And here we are, I think there's maybe, what, maybe 45 of us here this morning trying to be a family, trying to get along. It's going to be a little bit messy, right? Come on. It's going to be a little bit messy. Like, we're we're still on the honeymoon right now. I bet this is my, I think, my sixth week. I don't know, is it five, six? And already some of you are like, this, is, this guy's shtick is getting old. I don't know. We're going to be able to keep doing this. It's going to be messy. You're going to do things that are going to annoy people, and they're going to get mad at you, and they're not going to want to talk to you on a Sunday. Or you're going to get mad at somebody and not want to talk to them on a Sunday because it's messy to be a family and try to get along. It's not always going to be fun, Right? Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt in church. Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by me in church. Well, I'll raise mine. (laughs) It's all right. Like, it's not all right that you've been hurt by me. I'm saying it's all right to be honest about that. People think, I don't need to go to church. Oh, I can disconnect from all this organized religion stuff because I've been burned by that before. Do you want to know the person I think in this room most equipped to use that excuse? Me. That's just my, I mean, like I'm more familiar with my own hurt than I am with yours. So I think I'm more justified in disconnecting than anybody else. But you know what? I don't buy that nonsense for a second. Because what my Bible says is the pre-existing, preeminent Jesus Christ, who was there creating the world, came and preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far and reconciled us together into himself 
and brought us into this one household by one spirit, one faith, one God, one word, one savior. And we're supposed to do this together. I don't want to. I don't. Left to myself in the flesh. Can I just be honest and say I don't want to? Like I would be fine mowing the lawn right now if that were acceptable, but it's not. You're my family. I need my family. We don't get this in America because we live in a culture where if you have a problem, you pick up the phone, you dial three numbers, and somebody's going to come help you. I'm not sure how much longer it's going to be like that. We need our family. God designed this thing to work that way. So look at 20, Ephesians 2. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Thank God the church is not built on the foundation of the pastor. Amen? Thank God the church is not built on the foundation of how well we get along. Amen? Amen. Thank God the church is not built on the foundation of how little or how much we've been hurt by one another. The church is built on the foundation of what existed before. Now that means the prophets, right? The, all the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs. The church is built on that foundation. But look at this. This is so cool. What's the cornerstone? Yeah. So the church, this family that hurts each other and there's babies pooping themselves and there's jaded college kids and we're like, I don't even know how to talk to you half the time. All of that is not an accident. It's built on the foundation of Christ who, check it out, reconciled sinners to his holy self by giving up all of his holy self in order to redeem us from sin. Now, can we just for a moment acknowledge that if he can do that, we can probably do this, right? Like we can be a little patient with each other. 21, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Folks, it's a work in progress, right? And some of you are like, well, I'm checking week six, Haven't seen much progress from you, James. Well, I need more time than that. And you need more time than that. I always say sanctification. It's like when you go away from your grandkids for a while and then come back and see them. And you're like, they're a foot taller. What happened? That's sanctification. But mom and dad who were there the whole time are like, we don't see any growth at all. We just find ourselves buying bigger shoes. We need to be patient with one another because over time, this work in progress that's very messy and can be very hurtful, God is going to iron out the details. He's going to smooth out the wrinkles while the world is looking at us going, yikes, they're a bunch of hypocrites. God is going, I got this. We're going to straighten this out. This is going to be okay. And you're going to fight a little bit and you're going to repent. You're going to cry and apologize to each other. You're going to have healing services, not the kind that are on TV. <laughs> There's people who are going to get saved. There's going to be new babies. 
And the teenagers are going to have to teach those babies how to eat and drink and use the bathroom the way that they're supposed to as Christians. And the college kids are going to have to be nice to the teenagers and the middle-aged people who are out of touch. The middle-aged people are going to have to step into that space and do the job that the older folks are getting just too wore out to do. And the older folks are going to have to patiently teach and admonish and encourage. Like, it's going to work. He said so right there. The whole structure being joined together, not by our commitment to one another, but by his commitment to us, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's a bit messy, right? But the father looks at us and says, you're my beloved. And we love that for us, right? I love God looking at me saying, you're my beloved. But here's what we got to get if this is going to work, okay? He's looking at the other people and saying, you're my beloved too. And that impacts the way that you should treat that person. Because if you roll up on one of my kids and just go, well, if you do it to that one, I'll probably let him handle it. But either of those two, we're going to tangle now, right? If somebody comes after your kids They better watch out, right? The way we treat each other needs to be an indication that we understand that's one of God's beloved children. The way we respond to one another when we've been treated badly needs to be an indication that we understand that's one of God's beloved children. So we're real clever about this in the Reformed community. I don't know if you're that familiar, but what we do in the Reformed community is we excuse ourselves from that responsibility by saying, well, I just don't think that's one of God's children. (laughs) I just don't think they're even saved. Well, then you know what they need? The gospel, not your wrath. They need what you needed before you got saved. And then 22, my favorite verse in this passage, in him, you also, right? Like, we're like, yeah, everybody else is for sure. No, no, no. You also, in him, you also, you too, whoever you are, this applies to you. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Who's doing this work right here? You think I'm doing this? I'm not doing this work. You think you're doing this work? You think Lee's doing this work? You think Cecil's doing this work? No, no. We're not doing this work. God is doing this work. He's building this thing together. Check it out. For a dwelling place for himself. The body of Christ, the dwelling place of God. That's us. How mind-boggling is it that the God of all the universe, creator of everything, perfect in holiness, all-knowing, all-wise, everywhere, is working with us to make us his dwelling place. Now, what do you want to do on Sunday? You want to go to church? Be part of the dwelling place of God? I do. You're my brothers and sisters. Spurgeon, in a sermon on 2 Corinthians 8, if you want to go look at the Spurgeon archives and read it, 2 Corinthians 8, he has some remarks on the church, which he calls the dearest place on earth. And some of us hear that and we're like, "Mm." 
But if you think about it in the terms we've just looked at it, I think you'd be like, amen. It is the dearest place on earth. And if it's not, if you can't get there, then maybe you're in the wrong church. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's something sick. Maybe there's something needs to be dealt with. I think most of the time it's us, but there's certainly a chance that what's going on in the place where you worship is not healthy. And so in the coming weeks, we'll get into how we deal with all that. All right. But right now, today, here's what I want. I want us to think about everybody here and in the church universal, but right now, everybody here, this is the dwelling place of God. And how we treat one another should be a reflection of the fact that we understand that. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would own it to the saving and the changing of our hearts. We love you and we trust you. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.